0: I'm Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. All right, Scott, so let me tell you about this opus. So um, I interviewed um, a conductor this go-round. I was surprised. Because <laughs> you know how I feel. Well, so the, the the title of this opus is Cats, Cops, Conductors. So let's... And, and those are those are three sort of entities that I have a challenging um, relationship with. Um, so let, how about let's start easy. What's mm-hmm. your history with cats?
1: <laughs> I have had one cat in my life. Well, okay. actually, I had two cats. So I, I had Whiskey for about 10 or 11 years, and he was awesome. And That's then, a good cat name, too. And then after that, I had one named Roxanne, and she was not good. I I mean cats are fine as
0: long as they're at somebody else's house. And see and that's what I'm saying and I've um I've I've been in the situation to have to live with cats based on some of the guys I dated. So um you know, there was Andy who I was with for a decade, may he rest in peace. Um He had a cat that he had had since childhood when I met him, a Siamese cat named Montgomery. And he lived to be about 25 or 26 years old. He was an old cat. And we just always had, I don't know, I I grew up without... Cats, first of all, but really without animals in mm-hmm. in the house, much less in the kitchen or in, or in the bedrooms. Oh, you know, yeah. there were some dogs that kind of you know lived outside or, or would come in every now and again. But I was just so uh, I I hated living with a cat. I hate cat fur on the on the uh, furniture yeah. and on my clothes. But let me tell you, um, when Montgomery went on to cat heaven. Um, First of all, Andy was at work, so there was always the stress of, oh, great, now he's going to think I killed his f-ing cat, you know. But, you know, Montgomery just slowly went to sleep and, you know, we buried him and had a little, um, uh, you know, I, we both said a few words. And then, you know, to, to have a relationship with, and an, even even a cat, you know, for so long, for over 20 years, you know, um, people know knew that cat to be a part of his life a part of our life and when people were sort of um thinking about and reminiscing over their Montgomery memories on social media i found myself getting you know a little misty so you know d- d- despite my and and there have been many other cats you know i live with a cat now named grover who and and, and we argue plenty um but um i i i have that challenging relationship if if it's up to me I um, won't won't live with a cat, but I do. There is some cat-themed music, classical music out there that I think is uh, really charming. Do you remember um, the Waltzing Cat by Leroy Anderson? I don't. Yeah, it, it even has um, a sort of meow sound in the um, violin part.
1: Now what about that vocal piece where it's like young? Uh, uh, yeah. uh,
0: oh, the cat and duet. <laughs> meow. Oh, I forgot who wrote that. Is that Strauss or somebody? I don't know. We'll we'll find it in post. But I, so I heard that for the first. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, shout out to Melanie Dotson. We were uh, we were uh, pledging, we were pitching together during pledge drive down at WUOT, and it, every Wednesday down there is pet pledge day. So you <laughs> so you pledge um, in honor of your pet, and that's actually the biggest pledge. Day, You know, and then, you know, we read all the names of the cats and dogs and snakes and spiders and squirrels or whatever people have, you know, and um, to, to sort of go along, you know, with, with that idea of Pet Pledge Day, she, uh, and this was my first pledge drive ever as well. Uh, she said, well, this is a tradition, Garrett. You know, every year I, I, I air this tune, and I'm not even going to say anything about it. I just want to um, hmm. <laughs> see, see what you think about it. So how about we do that now? Here's this piece of music. See what you think of this. We should record that sometime. You, I, I feel like you can get into your cat bag with your voice. Meow. <laughs>
1: Maybe. Or we could do that Aaron Copeland tune, I Bought Me a Cat. Oh, yeah. I bought me a cat. My cat pleased me. I fed my cat on the yonder tree. My cat says, fill out I bought me a duck. My duck pleased me. I fed my duck on the yonder tree. My duck says, quack, quack. My cat says, "Feed, like feed." I bought me a goose. My goose, please me. I fed my goose under yonder tree. My goose says, "Claw, claw." My duck says,
0: "Quack." It's just so annoying. But it's also a little problematic if you remember the the latter verses of that. The singer talks about how he he bought him a wife, and the wife. Played him or please me or and I can't remember what sound Aaron Copeland said wives made, but honey, send all of your angry email to him. <laughs> honey, oh, is that the sound they make? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, yeah,
1: that's that's the the wife. That's that's the sound that she makes according to
0: Aaron Copeland. Yeah, I mean he wasn't our most. How can I say? um Gender equitable composer, <laughs> but you know, probably it, it it is what what it is. But you know, um, you know, there's also uh, Aaron Copeland's, uh, Our Town, specifically the the cue from that score called Grover's Corner, mm-hmm. and um, I always bring up um. Dell's cat, my step cat, Grover. <laughs> when I uh, when I when I play that tune, has it has a nice feel good sound to it. You, every time you visit our neighborhood, you talk about how it reminds you of Aaron Copeland's "Our Town." So, it does. So yeah. some some uh you know a- 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 Aaron Copeland wasn't all problematic. There's some beautiful music there too. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> that is that is that is the cat portion of this conversation. So. Um, let's get a little bit more serious. So, cops. Um, let me just go ahead and frame this conversation um, by saying that um, I'm bringing this up to um, offer uh, a way to expose people to a piece of music by Joel Thompson. Um, it's called uh, Seven Last Words um, of the Unarmed. And it is... Um, you know, based on hand I think it's Handel's seven last words of christ mm, mm-hmm. um and uh he he just takes the last words of seven victims of police brutality and put their final words to music. It's an oratorio for men's choir and orchestra. um my first exposure to it um was at Sphinx um a few years ago and and that performance actually inspired um you know, a series on race and classical music that I did which led to me doing a lot of things, including speaking at the Kennedy Center, um, giving presentations at Sphinx and ultimately working here because it's at one of those um at one of those events that I met Suzanne Schaefer who brought up my name to Julie mm. and when I came to Minnesota for the first time um, to play under Joshua Wallerstein, mm. you know um we we made the connection, so it 's really something how synergy and, and, and all that uh sort of sort of thing works and because that piece of music played a role in my meeting Joshua and my being here, I felt like it was important um to bring it up but um yeah, my relationship with law enforcement is very complicated because i 've had a police 's gun to the side of my neck and to the to the side of my temple because um, not even a tail light but the light um, above your um, your uh, license plate mm-hmm. that was and this was in Los Angeles when I was living out there um, and then you know years later in Knoxville you um, you know, I had a uh, my condo complex had a couple really nice, bougie little pools, and every time I was down there, I guess one of the white people called the police to be like, "Oh, there's a there, there's a a black guy down there by the pool." I'm not sure he lives here, and one of those situations, the the cop pulled the gun out, and um, it 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 has forever framed the way I think about law enforcement, and I can't help but to to really hold that opinion. I'm not, you know. I roll my eyes, but, you know, hashtag not all cops. But it's not just the individual policemen and policewomen, but it's the whole institution um, that, I'm, that I'm challenged by. And, you know, thank goodness, thank goddess for um, pieces of music um, by composers who have a similar perspective to get those, um, get those stories out there and told um, in a musical way. Do you feel one way or another about um, law enforcement before we leave this little portion of the conversation? I don't want to be here for too long. Yeah, um,
1: I had a negative experience that, that tainted the way I looked at him for a couple of years. Uh, I, was on a, I was on my bicycle and I was pulled over by uh, a police officer on my bike. And then another cruiser came up and then a third with a dog. And you, and all you have is you and your bicycle. And I'm a guy on a bike, and I had been at an overlooked Park maybe 15 minutes prior, and I was sitting there just drinking my water and doing some stretching, and someone called uh, called in that I was out there exposing myself. Well, were you? I was out there stretching. <laughs> and, yeah. No, and it was. Um, uh, I got a very. Uh, minute glimpse into what it might be like to be profiled.
0: Well, we'll come back to this conversation one day. The only, the only reason I, I bring up, you know, in, in most conversations, sometimes in jest, sometimes not, I say that, you know, if there are three, again, if there are three things in this world that I'm just really challenged by is cats, cops, and then somewhere in the middle between the jest and the very serious of 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 my challenge and disdain um, are conductors. Mm. You know, I don't like being told what to do. Do you know that about me? <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, so when you so when I get on stage and I have to hear somebody on the podium telling me that I'm playing too, um, not quite soft enough, or if I could do this or that, you know. It's easy for the ego uh, to get involved and for, and for you to get um, upset. There are a lot of conductors who I um, won't name here, but um, that I air on C24, um, that I have played under, that I have complicated relationships with, or mm-hmm. folks that I hope I never see again. Um, you'll just have to listen to music through the night if you want to hear any of that, uh, any of that tea. But one um, conductor in particular that I had a really nice... Um, time with was Joshua Wallerstein. So as I mentioned, my first time ever to Minnesota, I was um, a guest principal bassoonist with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Uh, we play a transcription of this really cool string quartet by Shostakovich, but a full orchestra transcription with winds and percussion. And and um, it, it was really cool. And and, jo- and Joshua Wallerstein led that. Um, and then, you know, after I moved here for the job, uh, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra had me back for pre-concert um discussions, pre-concert talks. And on one of those, uh, Joshua Wallerstein was back to lead the orchestra. So I knocked on the door of his green room and I was like, oh, so we're going to talk about this, 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 and this. And, you know, um, he he was surprised that it wasn't questions like, oh, so when did you want to be a, con- a conductor? Or, you know, I, I wanted the audience to really dig into uh, a meaty conversation about the music on that program because it was some really um, intense music. Um, one, of, one of the works was about um, the, the, the crucifixion, mm. you know, so we, we kind of got into that. But but anyway, he was so, um, you know, dare I say, impressed by, by the way I handled uh, that interview that he invited me on his podcast called Sticky Notes, which I've already uh, been a guest on, so I encourage you to go uh, back and listen to that. And uh, in return, Um, he uh, spoke with me uh, for this Opus of Triloquy. Um, This is our very first, Scott, our very first international um, interview. So he was in London. It was the afternoon for him and it was the early morning for me. But uh, we had a really nice conversation about what it means to be a conductor, his upbringing, and and, and some of the ways in which conductors can help lead the change uh, in the concert stage that we're trying to do here with microphones and buttons, so um, yeah, this is a this is a conversation between myself and Joshua Wallerstein, Meister Joshua Wallerstein. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. Where this is like a transatlantic interview, so this is exciting.
2: Yeah, exactly. All the way.
0: You're in St. Paul, right? In St. Paul, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to say one of the uh, big things I like to do uh, with folks I interview is uh, go on the internet and try to dig up some dirt. But oh, you, God. You, you, seem pretty <laughs> uh, squeaky clean. I mean, have you, <laughs> have you, have you always followed the rules, or is that just something you've had to do as as a conductor to make sure that you know your 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 reputation is, is always nice
2: and clean? Well, I mean, not every conductor follows the rules, but I think, um, <laughs> I, uh, I try, you know, I try my best just to be a, you know, a good person. Uh, you know, then, you know, this show that's been on, uh, the good place. Oh, I don't think uh, I know that one. It's, it's fantastic. It's Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. Um, and it's about basically being a good person. Oh, and uh, my yeah, wife yeah. and I have fallen in love with this show and, you know, we watch it and, you know, it's, you, you think about it. I mean, obviously that's not the only reason I try to be a good person, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, yeah, definitely a, an ethic of mine. <laughs> well, 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 that's definitely good. And it's, and
0: uh, I like that you brought up that there were some conductors of days past and maybe even days <laughs> present that don't always follow all the rules or at least all the time signatures. But uh, we'll, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get to that shortly. But, um, sure. you know, the first thing I kind of wanted to get into is that um, I, I think we're about the same age. I think I read that you're 32. I'm 32 now. And um, I've had the great pleasure of playing with some of the world's uh, great orchestras. But I mean, you've let them. How, how, how did you manage to get on the podium of all these big orchestras at such a young age?
2: Um, well, I was in, at NEC, New England Conservatory, as a violin student, and I started conducting. And um, I was just, I thought... I had a, my, one of my first experiences with a real conductor. Conductor was as a freshman at NEC with Ludovic Morlot, who okay. uh, was until recently the music director in Seattle. Um, and I talked to him about conducting a little bit, and he said, "Go watch a video of Carlos Kleiber conduct." And I thought, "Okay, cool. I don't know really who that is at that point." Mm-hmm. And I watched that video. It was Brahms Second Symphony with Carlos Kleiber, and I thought, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" I didn't know a conductor could do that, and so I thought, you know, that would be something I would be interested in. Um, I started getting friends together, offering them pizza and beer to play for me. Um, and we'll, then
0: we'll, we'll play for snacks, okay?
2: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had no money, so there was yeah. no, there was no, no money was uh, going to happen. But so then I, um, I saw on I think it's Musical Chairs, right? It's the website that yeah, yeah. has jobs and gigs for musicians, and I saw this competition for conductors in Copenhagen called the Malco Competition, and I thought you know, it'd be a chance to get experience with a professional orchestra. They invited 30 people to be a part of the competition. So I thought, okay, I have a video of me doing Beethoven 1 with my friends. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll, by some luck, get into this competition. So I was accepted, I flew to Copenhagen, and then got through and won the competition at age 21. And so I immediately um, was given 16 concerts with basically the major Scandinavian orchestras and uh then managers started c- calling and so f- basically from this competition my career grew from there so that that allowed me to get an audition with the new york philharmonic and um you know be uh, the assistant conductor there and you know all of that sort of everything leads from that source of the malco competition
0: right you know it's interesting that you bring up the um the pizza and beer that you are offering to your friends it, it seems <laughs> like having the uh you know, having access to musicians is a major part in, in developing a, a, a conducting portfolio. I mean, what 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 can you say to that? It, it it seems like if you don't have any friends or at least any money to pay strangers, you can't really dive into the world of conducting.
2: Oh yeah. I mean it's it I couldn't have done it at all I wouldn't have been accepted to the competition without having that video. And my friends and, you know, some people that I was just acquainted with gave their time for, I think it was two or three rehearsals and a performance, you know, essentially really for pizza. I mean, there was, that was it. And um, I think some of them wanted to get the experience of playing repertoire. Sure. Some of them were were buddies of mine and just did it because they were nice. And I had my dad playing in the viola section. Okay. Like it was, (laughs) I was very lucky. Um, And I had also access to some of the best musicians. I mean, my violin section at New England Conservatory was probably like one of the best violin sections I'll ever have. Sure. And that was with a bunch of 18, 19, 20 year olds. So, you know, that I I was so lucky to be able to get that access to those musicians.
0: You mentioned your dad. So I'm guessing you come from a musical family.
2: Yeah. um, I I call it the Weilerstein family circus. Um, (laughs) My uh, my dad um, is a wonderful violinist and teacher at NEC and at Juilliard. And my mom is a wonderful pianist, uh, chamber music uh, teacher as well. Uh, My sister is a cellist. um, So I grew up with classical music everywhere.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, you know, so folks who uh, listen to this podcast and folks who know me personally uh, know that I have a historic issue with many um, conductors. My my, <laughs> my, my 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 therapist says that it it rule it boils down to just a, a lack of uh, respect for authority or, or something. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll talk about that more. But okay. you know, I, I'm uh, I'm convinced that it takes a certain sort of egomaniac to even want to stand in (laughs) front of an orchestra. Help me understand why you wanted to, to, you know, get take your career onto the podium.
2: Um, Well, I think in, in some sense, I knew that as a violinist, there was a limit. I, I, I could play, but I wasn't going to be a soloist. I, I could potentially be in a string quartet, but that is a lifestyle that I was very hard. My dad was in the Cleveland Quartet for 20 years and mm-hmm. it, was, it was a hard life, Um, very successful for him. But lots of work, lots of traveling, lots of time away from home, which, of course, now I'm away from home all the time. So right, that right. didn't go exactly how I planned it. But um, in so when I saw this video of Kleiber, I always come back to it because it's something that I, I've read of musicians that played with Cliver. They talked about how he didn't inflict his will on the musicians. Hmm. They were basically just making the music together. He was leading. He was in charge. But they felt that they were able to express themselves within the music. And to me, that combination of having that sort of benevolent dictatorship yeah. of, le- of leadership along with sort of finding a way to empower all these musicians from the front to the back stand, I thought, okay, well, this can in some sense be like large scale chamber music plus i don't have to worry about playing in tune and <laughs> and and i can um you know, I've always, you know, for example, I've always wanted to play the clarinet. I've always wanted to be, play the timpani. I, you know, I've wanted to have that experience of almost feeling those instruments in my hands. Um, and so that's what conducting offered me as well.
0: So, you know, there are folks listening to this right now who don't really know what a conductor does beyond the hand waving or, or, or mm-hmm. whatever. In in, uh, in layman's terms, why is conducting important to an orchestra? What what really is your job?
2: Um. It's a great question because I think a lot, of it, as you probably, as you know, because you've played in so many orchestras. Yeah. Sometimes orchestral musicians ask this question as well. It's not just <laughs> not yes. just uh, people who don't know what conductors do. Um. So I, I find like if to compare it for somebody who doesn't know what conducting is. I would compare it to like a really good basketball coach or something. Okay. Um, They're not the ones making the sound. So they're not the ones on the court playing, but they can sort of guide the proceedings and, you know, show people where they're going, keep things efficient, keep things running smoothly. You know, if you imagine an orchestral rehearsal, there's could be as many as a hundred people playing. If a hundred people were all yelling at each other about how this phrase should go, where we should take time, whether we should even rehearse this passage or we should go on, you know that's where the conductor's sort of central authority comes from okay um and a conductor can also really guide the vision of a piece it depends on the repertoire but you know take a a piece where there's a lot of disagreement about like what the tempo should be or what the even the character of the music should be so if the conductor comes in with a strong enough idea of what they think the music is trying to tell them they can really bring everybody along and make it into a Sort of a cosmically transcendent performance.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and and based on that description, you know, I, I kind of uh, see a conductor as not just the coach, but also the referee in a way. When you're talking mm-hmm. about you know facilitating discussions and, and musical ideas, have you ever found yourself in the situation of you know having to uh, facilitate some sort of orchestral argument or big disagreement <laughs> when it when it comes to the way something is presented?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great analogy to a referee as well. I mean, I think a lot of people who are outside of the orchestral world are shocked to find out because I think musicians we have this reputation as we're such free artists and we're thinkers and everybody's just free all the time. But in an orchestral rehearsal, what would you say, ninety-nine to hundred percent of the decisions are made by the conductor? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it seems like it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends, and there's there's a specific orchestra that I work with a lot in Germany where it really does feel like a big quartet rehearsal and everybody's shouting comments from the back of the sections. And it's so exciting for me. Um, I think the first time I was there, I stopped to address something and the last stand violinist said, you know, what character should this be? And I was stunned because that had never happened to me before as a conductor. Hmm. And you know, you have to switch gears for a second. I looked around, I was like, Oh, this is normal here. This is amazing. And so we had this wonderful dialogue going. Um, In terms of other places where that's not the case, yeah, I mean, there have have been times where musicians have sort of gotten into it with each other and you do have to facilitate that. And um, I had one experience where they just, one part of the orchestra was kind of following me, the other one wasn't. And then they started accusing each other of not following me. (laughs) And so I was just like, look, I'm going to try to be helpful you listen to each other and let's just make the music together. Okay. Let's just, let's just play and we'll, we'll work it out. And, you know, I was trying to diffuse tension, but I mean, that can happen. You know, musicians are, often very passionate about what they believe in. And so, yeah, there, there's going to be disagreements.
0: Well, yeah. And, and it's the passion that makes the music really at the end of the day. That's what makes it come alive, in in, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, I, I can speak from experience, having um, played under your uh, baton, that you do a really great job of, of facilitating that passion and and letting, uh, you know, musicians really speak for themselves through their instruments, at least at that concert anyway. So, uh, so well, I, thank you. I, yeah, I, I, really appreciate that. But you're telling the story about that German orchestra and, and folks kind of uh, shouting things uh, from the back. Um, it makes me think of maybe the fact that there are differences between leading American orchestras versus leading European orchestras. What, what are some of the other differences you've noticed?
2: Um, I don't want to generalize too much because every orchestra well, sure, is a little different. Sure. I mean, for example, where we work together in St. Paul, that's a very different sort of uh, working relationship than other orchestras have right. in the U.S. Um, I would say, I mean, in Europe, the biggest thing, I mean, UK aside, funnily enough, the UK is very different in their orchestral world as well as their current desire to leave Europe. Um, <laughs> they, they, The European orchestras, like Central European, German, French, French, um, uh, italian orchestras have a lot more rehearsal time scandinavian ones as well um so there's actually a lot more time to discuss things
0: oh i see and
2: so i find myself often in europe you know stopping and saying you know like to the concert master or to a wind player what do you think do you want to breathe there you know do you think this phrase can work this way let's try this i mean that's one of the luxuries of having a lot of time is we can actually try something and say oh you know i don't think that worked let's try it another way now um in the u.s there's a lot less time um you know i think the standard american orchestra week has about what two five seven and a half eh, seven and a half to ten hours of rehearsal before the concert yeah and in europe you can get up to 15 to 20. wow Um, and so that's just you know the time and american orchestras also i think do Longer programs, weirdly enough, than huh. a lot of European orchestras do. So actually, you have even less time to rehearse. Um, so in the U.S., you know, like efficiency is really prized, and you have to know how to say something directly. Which, ironically makes you feel like you have to be more authoritative Hmm. um you know you were talking about in saint paul that that's such a wonderful thing because everybody does they play so much without conductor and they have that ability to work as chamber musicians but i've found in certain orchestras they don't want that they just want to be told what to do Hmm. and told how to do it and don't get too into the weeds and then in Europe, sometimes, again, it depends, they're they're like, don't tell us what to do, let's find it together. Hmm,
0: That's interesting. Yeah. And when you talk about a, a longer rehearsal process, I think about how, how painful it would be for me to, you know, go through an even longer rehearsal process with a piece <laughs> of music that, you know, I, I know so well, how, how, how do mm-hmm. you, how do you begin to spend that much time with, I don't know, Beethoven five or or Brahms three or one of these works that, you know, most musicians will have played? multiple times already
2: well it's tough but I think one one of the results of this timing disparity is that often American orchestras and actually the UK orchestras have probably the least amount of time Hmm. for example I did a concert uh, with the London Philharmonic where the program was Sibelius Trist Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, and Tchaikovsky Six. So, two of the most played pieces. I right. mean, the concertmaster told me while they were tuning that they played Tchaikovsky Six literally a hundred times the year before.
0: Oh. <laughs> um, oh, wow.
2: And we our rehearsal was from three to six in the afternoon, and the concert was at seven. That was it. Oh, my the goodness. The whole process. Um, so, that's extreme. That's not always like that, but... Um, so so the, the result of that, though, is that the London Philharmonic or the American orchestras, they came so prepared and they can sight read the music like down almost mm-hmm. immediately, unless it's a new piece. But as you said, for something familiar, they just know it. Um, in, in Central Europe, they don't come unprepared, I would say, but they come ready to explore. And that includes exploring their own parts um, <laughs> and, you know, sort of easy. They do the work sort of as we go. Um, I remember my teacher once saying, you know, when you first conduct a European orchestra, you will think you were conducting a bad orchestra.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Okay. And
2: then the next day will be, oh my God, what a lump, what a jump in level. Oh, the next day, even higher. And so everybody sort of, it's a, it's a more of a process than with an orchestra that has less rehearsal time where they sort of come ready and say, okay, put your stamp on this as quickly as possible. And in Europe, it's like, let's put a stamp on this together and find our way. Again, I'm generalizing way too much, course, but I would yeah. say overall, that's, that's sometimes how it feels.
0: Yeah. And, and before we get too far, I kind of want to touch on your uh, transition from the United States to Europe. I mean, you, you spend most of your time in London these days, right?
2: Yeah, I live here. Uh, I live in London and um, it's the base of where I, where I travel and everything.
0: Well, what were some of the, I don't know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of switching over? I mean, are, are you a, a British citizen now or, you know, what, what, what is it, what was that like?
2: No, I'm, I'm essentially, I would, confer your American listeners, I would say I have a green card. Okay. Um, I applied for an artist visa. Uh, my wife is on my visa. Um, so yeah, it was, it's, I guess maybe it's not even a green card, but it sort of has the effect of a green card. Um, and I can renew it and then after a certain point apply for citizenship. And we don't know how long we're going to live here. We might for a long time. We might not. But it's um, we, we definitely do really like living here, actually. Yeah,
0: I, I had the pleasure of visiting London once a, a few years ago. And um, I remember it just being. Oh, do I hear your phone?
2: Yeah, sorry. Sorry. It's oh, yeah, off. no worries.
0: <laughs> uh, OK, sorry. Let me start that again. Yeah, i um, yeah, I've had the pleasure of uh, visiting London once a few years ago, and I loved it. But it just seemed like such an expensive place to live. It, it, <laughs> is it viable for a, a musician to to make a living there?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the first of all, the pound has gone down so much since yeah. probably when you were there that it, it is cheaper now. It is expensive. I would compare it though. I lived in New York for oh, uh,
0: so ten, you already know <laughs> ten years. So I
2: know expensive rent and um, it. You have, yeah, it's not easy. I think actually what, one of the things that surprised me when I came here is just how expensive transportation is. Oh, wow. Uh, the, the public transportation, you know, in New York, like $2.75 gets you anywhere. Sure. And here, you know, that's the base price. And then there's, you know, zones and all right. of this stuff. And so that's that's more expensive. I think it is viable. I mean, so many musicians live here, but they there's a lot more of a um, sort of... Um, uh, tradition of living together so like three or four people will live together way after college oh wow okay um and so people sort of make things get get by in that way and there's always there's always neighborhoods that sort of become the musician neighborhoods and then they get slowly more expensive as they gentrify and then people find a new neighborhood
0: so do you live in one of these musician neighborhoods
2: i don't i we are very lucky we found a place in a, in a really wonderful neighborhood but we live above um a realty place okay and one of the things we learned living here is that People tend to not like to do that in in London, and so we got an amazing place at a pretty steep discount.
0: Okay, yeah, it's, it's it, you're bringing me back by talking about zones and all that. Thing. <laughs> when I um I remember when I landed at Heathrow and I was at the counter buying my uh, train pass. I was trying to explain to the guy behind the counter that yes, I need zone seven access because that's where the hotel is. We're way far out, and he didn't believe me, and <laughs> and, and, and yeah. that was the thing. And I kind of felt like that was a you know a test. To this assumption that Americans are, you know, a little less versed in in uh, I don't know, and and UK traditions and and UK culture, Do, have you have you uh, found that to be the case musically? Are, are there musicians who hear your American accent and and you know, drum up opinions?
2: Um, yeah, I'm sure there are. They don't really tell me. Oh, <laughs> um, but you know, I think. As you know, I think American musicians have the reputation, again, overgeneralizing, of of being a little bit too interested in precision and things being together and not being so interested in the sort of depth of the music. Um, And I think that's an unfair stereotype. And I don't think it's held by that many people, um, mm-hmm. but it's something that I do feel I have to actively work against sometimes.
0: Okay, well, and why do you why do you think that is? I mean, because when you mentioned like this uh, dedication to precision and making everything so clean, to me that sounds like the standard. That's that sounds like my teaching, but I, I guess that's mm-hmm. not so much the case there.
2: Well, I think it is. I mean, they they do believe in in precision and across Europe. I think it's just it's not as m- well, they think it's not as much of a priority as as other things are. So, you know, I think in a way that perhaps an American orchestra would rather something be together than to get to that, like, level 11 excitement, then a European orchestra would say, like, fine, if it's not together, we have to get to that level 11.
0: Right, right. Okay, okay.
2: Maybe. I Yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm hemming and hawing a little bit because I don't want to sound like I'm making blanket judgments. But I think it's, if you... On a very general level, you can say that.
0: Yeah, you're you're uh, you're trying to maintain your uncontroversial. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, sort of reputation, so I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, now, something that is a little controversial in the classical music world, a, a, at least around these parts, is uh, the discussion of diversity. And not just when it comes to personnel in the orchestra, but when it comes to the actual programming of, mm-hmm. of, of you know, what the orchestras are presenting. Um, how do you engage that, that topic?
2: Um, well, I try in the US when I'm conducting, and I've found actually this is easier than I thought it would be, uh, which I'm grateful for, that I almost always insist on having a piece, whether it's the overture, the concerto, and rarely, unfortunately, the, the big symphony, the big symphonic work and the sort of traditional programming of orchestral concerts, um, a, a piece by either a minority composer or a woman. mm mm-hmm. um, I feel like it's like the least I can do to sort of bring this conversation in. Um and so that's that's in terms of programming what I've tried to what I've tried to really insist on in in the US and then in Europe where the diversity question is, uh, is quite complicated, I think, and different from the US's uh, issues with it. I do try to do as many female composers as possible.
0: Talk to me about what makes that conversation different across the pond.
2: Um I think well, there's not as... I mean, it's obviously a different context of, of history historical and, yeah. history. Yeah. yeah, and so, you know, in a sense of there's this great canon of African-American composers that never got performed until a few years ago, essentially, by the major orchestras. And now they're sort of starting to be sprinkled in. Um, and I think it's really important to be doing that. In Europe, I think there's less of that historical context in that sense also because I'm an outsider I don't feel as comfortable sort of stamping that in okay because I'm not you know I'm not I have a Swiss orchestra I'm not Swiss I don't have that sort of deep understanding of their history in that way but with female composers it's easy you know for my for me um, as a as a sort of rule if I'm doing a living composer Or in my programming in Lausanne, for example, among living composers, I try to make it 50-50 between men and women because there are so many fantastic female composers these days. Of course, in the past, that was a little bit different, so it's harder to make that sort of even ratio. Um, And then in, in the U.S., again, just trying to get as many of these pieces on the programs as possible.
0: Yeah. When you talk about the, the difference in historical context between the U.S. and Europe and classical music, you have me thinking about um, just American classical music as a, a sort of uh, outlier in itself. I mean, are the works of George Gershwin and, and Aaron Copland performed uh, in, 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 uh, in Switzerland or in other places around Europe?
2: Yeah. And I find people love them. Gershwin is hugely popular in Europe. Um, I think Copeland is a little bit less because people have this idea of, especially pieces like Appalachian Spring, being too sentimental. Okay. Um, But I think that's more down to performance than it is about the music itself, I think if you perform it in the way that I believe Copeland intended to have it performed, where it's not sentimental, Mm -hmm. then it's so moving and touching what he did. Um, I've found with American composers who are less familiar to European audiences that that's harder. I see. Um, You know, for example, I tried to get a a Florence Price Symphony performed, and they were like, who is that? Wow. Um, You know, we don't know who that is, and our audience won't come. And they were honestly probably right. Um, but I did actually get a performance of prices for symphony in Iceland of all places. Oh, okay. Mostly. Icelandic premiere of Florence Price's music, wow. uh, and that was really exciting. Um, the audience got so into it; it was just really like beautiful sort of feeling to bring this this piece kind of start almost across the pond, almost all the way.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was actually you know going to be one of my uh, next questions. You know, folks have at least heard the names Gershwin and Copland, but maybe not William Grant Still or mm-hmm. Florence Price or, mm-hmm. or or these other folks. Um, wh- one of the arguments that I make here, uh, specifically as it relates to Duke Ellington, but there, there are other composers who this conversation can relate to, is the idea that, you know, Mozart wrote um, lots of music inspired by to- Turkish culture. Of course, Brahms mm-hmm. wrote all of those Hungarian dances. So when you talk about uh, folks like Duke Ellington, you know, I think about it in the same way, culture being connected to classical music, even though, you know, the music of that culture may not be a main part of the canon. Are there are there cultural music Musics of of Europe that make it into the concert hall that we don't really uh, have a context for here in the United States.
2: Um, not. I don't. I think the programming is pretty standardized across. Huh. Across. I mean, I don't do. Pro, I mean, the basically the things I would say essentially. There's things that are missing, for example, American music that is not Gershwin-Copeland and Bernstein. Uh uh-huh. um, Those composers have very rarely made it across into Europe and that you really have to fight for them. Um, even somebody like Bernard Herrmann, I have trouble getting his music performed. Oh, that's interesting. Um, it, because it's just not known. Um so and I don't think it has it's not sort of like this, maybe it is insidious, but I think it's also just the fact of people being worried about selling tickets. And uh, you know, I, I was talking to a, uh, an artistic administrator who told me, if we have a composer who is unknown to the public, it could be a composer who was living in the 1800s. It's nothing to do with new music or old music. Um, but they don't know the name. We lose 200 tickets instantly. Oh wow. And, you know, I, on one hand, you think, well, we have to fight. We have to make the classical music programs modern and relevant to society. But also, you also have to stay, survive. And so, you know, I, I felt, okay, I've been kind of fighting for this program for the last hour with this person. And then I, you know, I realized, well, who am I to tell this orchestra they have to lose 200 seats of revenue when they're paying me to come conduct. So, you know, I, I felt there, there is that, difficult balance that every orchestra has to find. And I find in, in in both Europe and the US the programming becomes pretty rigid to the stuff that people know.
0: It's interesting because for if I were in those rooms fighting for this music, I would, you know, turn over uh to the marketing team to have to worry about ticket sales and that sort of thing. Do you do you not feel like it, it mires down your role with an orchestra to have to worry about things like ticket sales?
2: Um yeah, it's hard. I think um, the marketing teams, you know, have to. They have to try, in their in the ways. You know, I think it's. Sorry, let me start that over. Um, I think it's hard, but I also think that there are creative solutions out there. Um, that people haven't tried as much perhaps as they should, you know, I, I, one of the people who's become a big figure in the classical music world recently is Aubrey Bergauer from the California symphony. Um, she has made a huge splash with sort of very obvious initiatives that I guess nobody had thought of before. Mm. Um, like, uh, translating the, the California symphony's website into Spanish, oh, which, yeah. resul- which almost seemingly directly resulted in them having an increase in Hispanic uh, attendance at audience, at, uh, at concerts. So, you know, that sort of easy stuff that we don't even think about. I mean, it's just about getting outreach to the people. If you're going to lose 200 people because they don't want to hear uh, William Grant Still, then you've got to find those 200 people somewhere else.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I'm going to write that down because that, that's something Yeah, you're right. It's obvious, but just sort of not thought about that. That's, that's definitely uh, like that. Um, So I'm curious, um, you know, every musician, whether they want to admit it or not, has gotten lost at some point, you know, during a rehearsal or maybe even a, (laughs) maybe even a performance. I'm curious, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever conducted, I don't know, the Rite of Spring and just kind of got lost in the mixed meter sections or something like that?
2: Um. Not something that like took like happened for a long time. I mean okay. I've certainly made a hundred hundreds of mistakes sure. while conducting uh where I may make a beat pattern wrong. But in terms of getting completely lost, um I mean I've I've presided over performances that resulted in chaos. Okay. <laughs> uh, I had a one of what uh well I mean one if you're looking for something that was directly my fault, I did West Side Story and the connection from cool to the rumble i we hadn't rehearsed that a lot and i kind of gave half a cue to the timpani player to go (laughs) on to the rumble one bar too early i mean if sort of like it was the kind of thing if we had rehearsed it more i don't think it would have happened but i still sort of half did it and then half the orchestra went with him the other half played in the correct bar and so for about 15 or 16 bars it was just just like it was really like a rumble, like it was just uh,
0: yeah, an actual rumble. Chaos.
2: It was an actual <laughs> rumble, and finally, uh, this hero horn player just took charge because you know, at that point, a conductor can't do anything, you're just sort of like beating time frantically, yeah. trying to you can't shout, you can't hold up numbers because everybody's just trying to figure it out. So, this hero horn player just played the big theme, and I just pointed at her and everybody just locked into her and so it sort of fixed itself within 20 bars and you know the crazy thing is we we stay up at night thinking about these things. Yeah. Not not one person in the audience noticed. I came out afterwards and I was like, "Oh my god, like this was such a disaster." And I said to somebody and they were like, "Oh no, I mean, it was fine. I mean, it was it was so exciting." And then <laughs> the review the next day didn't even mention it. You know, so like we we think we get very wrapped up in these things. I'm sure you have had the same experience. And then of course they don't come out to the audience very well.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, th- if that happened in the States or in Europe? It was in the States. Oh, wow, so th- the folks would know the music, but still yeah. didn't still, st- still didn't notice it.
2: I mean, if they noticed it, it, you know, I think we often think of, I mean, this is another topic, but I think we imagine people listening extremely closely because that's what we do
0: yeah. as musicians.
2: Yeah. And I actually don't think people listen so closely. I was at the proms, the BBC proms a few weeks ago for Shostakovich 11. And the, for those of you who don't know, the BBC proms is in the Royal Albert hall. It's like thousands of seats. It's yeah. huge. It looks like a gladiator arena. Yeah. And the conductor and the orchestra has genius idea of putting these huge church bells up in the top of the hall. Um, and the end of the piece has these church bells sort of ringing this alarm. And, they came from behind most of the audience and I knew it was coming. So I was kind of waiting for it and it happened and it was just unbelievably loud and so exciting. And I looked around the audience and I don't think, maybe they noticed, or maybe the convention was you have to stay still and not show any emotion during a classical performance, but no five or six people turned around to where the sound was coming from. The rest of the audience almost seemed to not even realize there was something happening. And so sometimes I think, That's our job to make people listen closer but also like we have to realize that people aren't not necessarily listening on that kind of level of us knowing every note of the piece.
0: Yeah, and uh, and I'll just quickly say that I found that to be the case for me as a musician and as a radio personality. I'll, you know, I'll say I'll say Mozart was born in, you know, 1766 mm-hmm, instead of 1756 mm-hmm. and I just beat myself up about it, but of course no one, you know, really th- right. th- there there's the one person who, you know, is shaking their head in front of the radio, exactly. but <laughs>
2: Yeah I mean I when I make my podcast I I my editing is so rudimentary and I get so upset when I listen to it later and I'm like oh I, you can hear me breathing there and that's terrible <laughs> but actually I get some, I'm sure you get these too I get some really funny emails from people um I had a british listener correct my pronunciation of some british pronun- british Words that were pronounced in a certain way that I was pronouncing in an American way. Okay, um, so that was very helpful. Uh, and so I get some, I get some emails about little mistakes that I make that I haven't, of course, haven't even realized.
0: Right. So. <laughs> well, uh, but before I uh, wrap this up, uh, I just have a couple more questions for you. Yeah. So what? Um, you know, I, I described up and coming conductors as egomaniacs, so I'll do that again here for for all the young egomaniacs looking for a career in in conducting. What, what would you say are the the first few steps for them for their journey?
2: Well, one, don't be an egomaniac. <laughs> I mean, really, but I, I mean, I'm I'm joking, but seriously. Um, just as a side, can I swear on the show? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, one thing that my former violin teacher, Lucy Chapman, uh, she was standing in front of a class. It was sort of like a career development class in NEC. And she was scheduled to talk for like 45 minutes. And she obviously did not have 45 minutes of things to say about career development because Mm -hmm. it's so against her sort of ethos as a person. And she said, you know, guys, I just have one thing to say to you. Don't be an asshole. (laughs) And, you know, it's just, it's so true. And I think, you know, so one, don't be an egomaniac. Two, I think you have to have a strong idea of what you think music should be like, and you have to be able to communicate that to people um, in a way that will make them want to do it. Um, you know, I think a lot of conductors, especially in the past, they sort of just inflicted, as I said earlier, they inflicted what they want on the musicians. Musicians don't have any choice and they just do it. Yeah. But the most transcendent performances are not those. The transcendent performances are the ones that, or when everybody's bought in. Mm -hmm. So that's on a sort of meta level of being a conductor. Um, But I would just try to get as many people together as you can, even if it's just a pianist or a string quartet and just Bash through a lot of the standard repertoire, like the Beethoven symphonies, the Mozart symphonies, the Haydn symphonies. Those are like the sort of core ways conductors start learning how to conduct. And um, you'll see a lot of uh, a lot of friends of mine who are orchestral players try to conduct, and then they they stop complaining at least for a little while. About <laughs>
0: conductors. Okay, well then, maybe I'll hold back my complaints as well until <laughs> I give it no, a but shot. L-
2: <laughs> no, but I mean, look, you're you're of course you're right. I mean, orchestral musicians, as you know, are not the happiest people in the world. I think there was that famous study. Yeah, that's true. Wasn't there that famous study that said, like, orchestral musicians have the job satisfaction somewhere just above prison guards? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, I, you know, I don't know. If that was one study. I don't know what the methodology of it was. But, you know, an orchestral musician, if you imagine it, especially, I would say especially for a string player, but also for a wind player like yourself, if you're a violinist who's grown up being the top of your class and you go to school and you want to be a soloist and it doesn't work out and then you go to an orchestra, you're the fourth stand in the first violins and all of a sudden you are making zero decisions. Mm-hmm. The conductor is making all the musical decisions. The concertmaster or leader of the second violins is making all the bowing decisions. You're told how to vibrate, how to what fingering to use how to phrase everything, you know, it's, it's natural that that would cause a lot of resentment and difficulty for somebody. And so I think for me, my job as a conductor is to try to Reinvigorate that sort of creative process for an orchestral musician and try to bring that out of them again, rather than just saying, "Well, I'm here and I'm standing on the podium, and now you're going to do what I want."
0: Yeah, well, that's very encouraging for me to hear from a conductor. Maybe I'll uh, again, like I said, maybe I'll lighten up now and <laughs> give it give it all a second look. I, I wonder if there's any um, any non-classical music you're you're listening to. Is there anything on on your uh, on your iPhone or however you listen to music that isn't classical?
2: I wish I could say like, honestly, yes, Um, (laughs) I, I, uh, well, one thing, I mean, it's, I guess related, but I, I've started learning the clarinet and because I've wanted to learn how to play Klezmer clarinet. And Mm. so I've been listening to a lot of like your Feidman and David Krakauer. Um, so that's been really fun, uh, to get back into that. But other than that, uh, I mean, really sadly, no. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, well. Next time I see you in person, I'll I'll quiz you on some clarinet fingerings because I, oh. you know, yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I will get those answers wrong. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how can uh, how, how can folks uh, reach out to you if they want to reach out or find out more about you, the orchestras you play with, and the work you have coming up?
2: Um, well, I have my website, uh, JoshuaWeilerstein um, I'm on Twitter sparingly more on the politics side of Twitter, which is just a nightmare, but sure, yeah, it's is, interesting it? enough. And that's at Josh Weilerstein, because my name is too long to fit into a Twitter handle. Um, and then on Facebook, also at Joshua Weilerstein and, and also my podcast, that Sticky Notes podcast, you can uh, write messages to that and, and I'll, uh, I'll get back to you.
0: All right. Well, uh, Maestro, thanks so much for spending the time. Thank you. Joshua Weilerstein and
1: Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy.
0: You know, Scott, because you have never been an orchestral musician, maybe it's it's hard for you to understand how rare people like Josh are. It know? is, and 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 oh, because you interviewed countless conductors and and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Do you, excuse me, uh, do you think? Uh, <laughs> I I won't ask you to call anybody out, but does it, to you, did it sound like uh, Josh is someone who you would be interested in having another conversation with? Sure.
1: Yeah. Sure. I think if we, um, you know, I I haven't had too many negative experiences because the interviews that I've done with conductors, you know, there's a short window. You have to get in and hit the questions that you need to air. Mm -hmm. So it was really great to listen to you guys really dig into these issues and I appreciated it. Yeah.
0: So once again, if you would uh, like to um, you know, get, learn more about Joshua Wallerstein, you can uh, head over to his website. Uh, definitely check out his uh, podcast, Scott. is on the more traditional side. It's not quite as trill as Triloquy, but uh, a really uh, a great project. Be sure to look for um, the episode of Sticky Notes that um, I had the pleasure of uh, being, a, being a guest on. All that information will be uh, in, in the description over at Triloquy.com. Org. All right, so for the next opus of Triloquy, Scott, um, we got a we had we had a whole bunch of folks in the yeah, <laughs> into the someone. studios. Uh, so we're gonna um, uh, talk with uh, the leaders of the Twin Cities uh, Women's Chorus. A 16 member chorus is gonna come in, and we're also gonna uh, talk to their uh, director Jan about the organization, uh, what some of its goals are, and um, what what is the role of a women's chorus um, in this contemporary, you know, time when we talk about, uh, hashtag me too, when we talk about gender equity, uh, what all that means. So, um, yeah, looking forward look, to it. Looking forward to that, uh, for sure. So, again, um, check out everything at Triloquy.org as far as uh, videos, descriptions, and all kind of fun extras that Scott puts together.
1: Suggested listening and all that other sort of thing. And if you'd like to reach out for, uh, to us, you can send an email to Triloquy at AmericanPublicMedia.org. If you happen to be listening through a, uh, a podcast portal, give us a, a subscribe and, and a like, I get, or I don't know, a review. Is that how they do it?
0: <laughs> yeah, give us five stars. Give us one star. Just just give us what you give us. It's, right on. It's a pleasure to be here, and it's great to have you as a listener. <laughs> See you next time.